And while they're going, it is good, let me say, it is good to be back home with you. Uh, and thank you for the break, but we missed you very much. Um, not just saying that, it's, it's real. Um, we did enjoy the, some time off, but very thankful to Seth still for filling the pulpit last week. Uh, he is a good friend, and it has been uh, one of the joys of the last five years has been seeing the Lord use Seth uh, in Cleveland, Mississippi to do the work there of, of planting, um, first at RUF and then of planting Crosstown Church. Um, so I hope that you got to hear a little bit about what the Lord is doing uh, in him and, and through him there. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series in Mark uh, this may be something of a long-term, <laughs> long-term project for us. Uh, we'll take breaks. Um, we're going to cover one whole passage of Scripture today, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But oh, to be Switzerland, um, oh, to, oh, to be able to remain neutral and to, to avoid the hard choice and, and to, uh, to if, if I would have listened to myself uh, so often uh, when I just tell myself, just stay out of it, <laughs> remain neutral, uh, I would save myself a lot, of, a lot of hassle, a lot of worry, a lot of sleepless nights. The gospel of Mark is not that kind of gospel. If you long for comfort, uh, and if you long comfort in the sense of I'm staying in my little bubble and comfort zone and not be challenged with the hard questions, the gospel of Mark is not for you. It is not a gospel of comfort. It was written to people who were not in a position of comfort. Uh, somewhere is one of the earliest gospels, somewhere around 64 to 70 AD. So kind of right in the time of the, the fire, right after the fire of Rome and the Jewish rebellion. And it, it, is a, it is a gospel written to inject some iron into the spines of early Christians as they faced persecution from, from Rome and, and from Jews alike. Uh, Mark is a very punchy writer. He gets right to the point. Uh, he says exactly what he thinks. He says who Jesus is, and then he demands a response. And I think we're going to see that characteristic in the Gospel of Mark as we, as we go along. So uh, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You might know the name uh, Cal Fussman. Uh, he, has a, he has a podcast. Uh, he is an interviewer. Um, I think he is the writer. I think he writes at GQ or Esquire, one of those places. But he is known as, as an interviewer's interviewer. And he is the kind of guy that other interviewers look to uh, and he's been at it for a long time. He, is, he knows how to ask a question. Um, and in the 80s, he, he had the chance to interview Mikhail Gorbachev. And this was kind of at the height of the Cold War and Reagan and nuclear disarmament. And, and all of that was kind of at, the, at its peak. And Cal Fussman had the opportunity to interview uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. He was the guy with the weird thing on his the little birthmark on his forehead, if you remember that. Um, he was Russian. Image from my childhood. Um, 
and they were, they were to meet in a ballroom and there was this, this huge ballroom uh, and there were two chairs kind of stuck in the middle of this ballroom where, where Gorbachev and the interviews were going to sit and there were, there were reporters lined up outside the doors to, to interview him and they each were going to take a turn and they each were going to be given an hour and a half, which seems very generous in terms of the, the amount of time that he was having, uh, but due to scheduling problems or something like that, uh, they ended up only being able to give each reporter 10 minutes. And since he didn't speak English, they were going through an interpreter that really amounted to about five minutes. And you know, it, it kind of takes at least a minute to get warmed up to each other. So really, you're kind of looking at three minutes at that point, right? So hour and a half down to three minutes. And so Cal knew he had to, he had to come in uh, with his A game. And so he sits down with Mikhail Gorbachev in one chair, he and the other, looking at each other across that little space there. And he just asks this question. What was the best advice your father ever gave you? So Gorbachev is here and he is teed up. He is teed up to talk about Reagan and nuclear disarmament and the Cold War and all that kind of stuff, all that political stuff going on. And so the question takes him aback and he he sits for a minute and he says immediately Gorbachev kind of looked up at the ceiling as he's thinking about this question and his answer to this question. And, And Cal Fussman says, you could just tell that the ceiling of that ballroom came, became the the screen on which Gorbachev was projecting all of these memories that just kind of came flooding back to him. And then Gorbachev looks down and looks at Cal Fussman and, and tells him the story of when his father was being deployed during World War II and the whole family went before he was deployed and his father bought him ice cream. And Gorbachev looks down at his hands And Fussman said it's like he was looking at that bowl of ice cream and thinking about it and being transported back to that time. And and Fussman says it's almost like Gorbachev was saying the reason I'm okay with the Cold War coming to an end and nuclear disarmament and all that is because I know what it's like for families to be separated by war. That's the power of the right question. And as other people came in to take their interview with turns with Gorbachev, Gorbachev kept sending them out because he wanted to keep talking to Fussman about this, this question that he asked. And I wonder if we kind of walked in here today with the wrong questions teed up. That we, we walked in here today wondering, ready to talk to God, ready to have God talk to you about about all sorts of different things, your, your job, your family, relationships, money, circumstances in your, in your life, worries and fears and problems. And if we're, we're, we're coming in here today all ready to, to hear about those things, but what if the question that God is asking us right now isn't any of those things? What if the question God is asking us right now is this? Who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? And what difference does it make? Mark's Christmas story is a radical proclamation of the good news 
that demands a response. It's, this is the Christmas story in just 12 English words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no question where Mark stands at the end of, of these 12 words, who Jesus is according to Mark. And, and Mark launches right into the baptism of Jesus and John the Baptist and, and the dramatic confirmation that he gets at, at Jesus' baptism where, where all three persons of the Trinity show up at once in verses 10 and 11. When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom, with you, I'm well pleased. Does that leave any question? Mark then launches also into the confrontation with Satan in the, in the wilderness. And, and Jesus goes on to preach the, the good news of the kingdom of God. He goes on to call disciples. He's, he's confronting demons. He's healing leprosy. He's forgiving sins and making paralytics walk and, He's confronting Pharisees. Who can remain neutral to a guy like that? Who can remain neutral to a guy like that? You don't remain neutral to a man like this. You get in line behind him. You follow him. You obey him. You trust him. Either a man like that becomes your king or you fight him like a rebel. This Christmas story demands a response. Let's look at it in four ways. Stand on the sure foundation, proclaim the good news, trust in the work of our liberating Savior, and glorify the Son of God. Those are four responses to Mark's Christmas story. Stand on the sure foundation. This isn't the only gospel that begins at the beginning, right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John famously starts, in the beginning was the word, this, this idea of the pre-existence of the second person of the Trinity. But, but in Mark's gospel as well, being a very kind of punchy, practical writer, uh, this is the beginning. This is the first thing that happens in the chronological order of telling the story of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel uh, in, in biblical terms, we would say this is the inscription. This is the title of the gospel. This is the title of the document you are about to, to start reading. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it's more than just the start of a document. It's, it's an inauguration. It's the beginning. The first words of this message proclaim the start of a new kingdom. A new reality for God's people, a new, a new hope for beleaguered disciples, for people filled with fear, a new, a new king to follow. Beginning means inauguration, beginning means foundation. Famously, all over the Bible, especially in Proverbs, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's the foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom starts, and builds from there. That Mark is saying that the message found in this document is the message upon which the follower of Jesus can stand with confidence. Because the message is the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some words are, are like life rafts. If you think of Churchill's 
Churchill's words to the British people during World War II, Roosevelt's uh, the date that will live in infamy speech uh, that rallied frightened people and give hope and purpose to, to nations facing difficult time, give, give a call to serve and pitch in. That Some words are like life rafts. And Mark's, Mark's gospel is given as a life raft for frightened Christians because here is Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, in power and authority. Jesus, the divine Son of God. Not only that, Jesus, the servant. Not only that, Jesus who, who suffers along with his people. Not only that, Mark shows us that this is Jesus who, who is the radical message of hope and grace to a scared and struggling people, that this is injecting iron in the spine of, of fearful Christians, that the gospel is the foundation because the gospel is the person, Jesus, who is the only one who can accomplish what needs to be accomplished, who can accomplish salvation, because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, One of the messages here to be found for us is you are not your own foundation. The self can't be the thing that directs your life. That Jesus comes to establish his kingdom in your heart. Galatians 6 says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. That's good news. Because his foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, is secure and strong. We need to receive that good news. Not just the information of it, but that needs to penetrate our hearts. It needs to shape our thinking. It needs to convict us of our sin and cause us to cry out for grace. And then we proclaim it. That we proclaim the good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Historically, you know, the word gospel means good news, right? And, and we, think, we think in terms of, oh, that's, that's the title of one of the first four books of the New Testament, gospel. But it, it really just means good news. It, it's the idea of news that is significant and has an impact on the world like military victories. So, so think of the end of World War II or, or more historically, like the birth of an heir to an empire. Like in Rome, the, the gospel would be, would be proclaimed at the birth of a, the, the good news of the birth of an heir to the Roman empire would be proclaimed throughout the land. It's news that has impact and changes the world in some way. You often, you often think and, and we talk about milestones in life and in history and in our kind of shared history as, as Americans. And we, we ask the question, where were you when, you know, JFK was assassinated? Well, I wasn't anywhere. Um, <laughs> some of you were. Where were you? This is for me. This is one from my child. Where were you when the space shuttle discovery exploded? Right? That was one from, that I remember. I remember driving down Houston Levee on a, on a morning 
headed towards Lakeland where I was working at, at the time and turning on the radio and hearing news reports, just sketchy news reports at that time of something that had happened at the World Trade Center, right? A lot of our lives have been divine, defined by this point in time. Where were you when 9-11 happened, right? News that moved the world from, from, from peace to war. Except this is in reverse. It moves the world from war to peace. News that is meant to be shared and spread so that it'll have an impact. We talk about needing both word and life proclamation. We need to proclaim the gospel both with our words and with our actions. And of, and of course, those are both very important. And there's this, this, this somewhat unfortunate uh, quote attributed to St. Francis, who probably never said it, who himself was actually kind of a fiery hellfire and brimstone preacher. Um, but St. Francis allegedly said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That kind of implies that verbally telling the good news is somehow less virtuous than demonstrating it. But what we actually need is both, that, that the gospel is news and you have to tell the news. You have to communicate the news with words that imagine the nightly news. If, if the anchors and people on TV just sort of pantomimed what was going on, uh, the news would be somewhat weirder than it already is, right? <laughs> imagine trying to translate the president's Twitter feed by pantomime. I don't know. Uh, Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to be believed in, in, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You need life proclamation, but you need word proclamation as well. Word without life that, that if there is only word proclamation, but no evidence of it in your life as a proclaimer, how will anyone know that the gospel has penetrated the heart, that, that when the gospel is real, when you've believed it, it changes your life? That sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it hurts. That idols will be destroyed. Your control will be threatened. That having Jesus conquer your heart hurts because sin is the occupying force. And repentance opens the gates to the grace of the gospel of Jesus, who is our liberating Savior. So we proclaim the gospel, but we trust in the work of our liberating Savior, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Christ means Savior. Christ means Messiah. That, that the gospel is about Jesus. The good news is about the Messiah. That Mark is telling the story of the events of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. And, and he is giving life-giving good news to encourage and to strengthen that this news of God's action in the world to save his people is, is intended to be strengthening and encouraging. Preaching the story of his liberating grace reminds us that it's his work. It's his liberating grace. 
that we trust in the work of our liberating Savior. It's, it's His work. It's His life that makes us holy. His death that purchases our peace with God. The gospel isn't just about Jesus the Messiah. The gospel is Jesus the Messiah. The gospel is not theology or doctrine. Not that, that, that those things are bad, but it's about a relationship with a person. It's, it's not this or that religious habit. It's not refraining from doing some things and doing other things. It's, it's not seeking approval from this group of people or that group of people. The gospel is recognizing your helplessness and receiving the Messiah as he does what you cannot do. That we have, we have convinced ourselves that there is not much that we cannot do. That we are, that we are self-sufficient and we are self-reliant in every way. That, that our wealth tells us that we can buy what we lack. Our power tells us we can take what we lack. Our entitlement tells us that we deserve what we lack. Our self-reliance tells us that we can earn what we lack. Our pride tells us that we don't really lack anything in the first place. God's word tells us in Romans 3 that no one is righteous. No, not one No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the person of Jesus who is what we lack. His righteousness is for us. The good that he does is given to us. His blood is the currency used to purchase forgiveness for my sins. That this table is set with everything that I need to have a relationship of peace with God the Father. Because of the person of Jesus and what he has accomplished for me, So I trust, not in my own merits, not in my own efforts, not in my own power or wealth or entitlement or abilities or, or attitudes or anything like that. I don't, I don't trust in my ability to keep a set of rules. I don't trust in my ability to, to understand and express deep theological doctrines as great as they are. I trust simply in the Son of God the Savior who came to shed his blood for me. I trust in his work. And having trusted in the work of the Son of God, we glorify the Son of God. That if this news is is good to you, that if you have heard and believed in the now-proclaimed good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Messiah, then your response will be to glorify him as the Son of God. In just a a few short verses, all three persons of the Trinity are going to explicitly show up on the pages of Scripture. I read it just a a second ago. And this is where Mark kind of gets really radical as he he writes this to, to suffering Christians, to weak Christians, to unworthy Christians, to frightened Christians, Christians who are are tempted to turn away rather than to suffer, that that Christians in Mark's day and and Christians today need to know that we are not merely following a good man. That we are following the Son of God. That we we are saved by the Son of God. That the good news is the son of God, that the one who died and whose blood cleanses me from my sins is the son of God. That God in his justice demanded the penalty for my and your rebellion be paid in blood. But God in his grace pays that penalty for my and your rebellion in the blood of his own son. What is your response to that? If you reject the proposition that you need a Savior or that Jesus is the Savior, but if you believe the good news, the good news that you are far worse off than you ever feared, and far more love than you ever dared to hope. And then in Christ Jesus, you can be both fully known and fully loved. And that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Then there is only one response. Praise him. Praise him. Praise Him. Live your life praising Him. In every moment of every day, praise Him. With every thought, praise Him. Teach your kids to praise Him. Praise Him with your brothers and sisters at every opportunity. Schedule your life around praising him. Praise him when it's easy or when it's hard. Praise him when you don't feel like praising him. But our response to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is to praise him. And when you are too weak, too sin-sick, too hurting, too scared, too ashamed to praise him, remember the grace of the Son of God 
which covers your shame, which covers your guilt, which covers and makes secure your future so that that thing which you are afraid of cannot threaten you in any real way. That when your heart breaks and you would rather do anything else but praise him, run to the cross. Run to the fount of goodness and grace. Run to the table that is set before you, comprised of his broken body and his shed blood. Avail yourself of the mercy. Remember the good news. Trust in the work of the Savior and praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to praise you. We want to praise you as we, we ought to praise you. We want to praise you as you ought to be praised. We, we want, oh God, to, to be able to come into your presence and praise you. We want to be able to come into your presence without fear without guilt, without shame, trusting and relying on your mercy. We, we want to be able to do that, but our sin gets in the way. Our weakness gets in the way. Lord, remind us of the beauty of the Savior upon whose life we stand, upon whose death, by whose death we've been redeemed whose spirit now dwells within us and enable us, O God, to respond to the work of Jesus done on our behalf by praising you. O Lord, we we ask that, that you would help us even as we approach your table this morning to, to come in Uh, recognizing our need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.